If you have a Bible or want to use uh, one on the, on the chairs there, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, for the last two weeks, we've been doing an introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes. And now we're, we're just going to look uh, at chapter one and, and focus in on a few key verses of chapter one. Now, chapter one of Ecclesiastes is a bit of a downer. Uh, it is, uh, it is the, the preacher. Uh, we were just talking about that, uh, that word that that term comes from. It's where the title of the book comes from. It's the gatherer, the assembler. The ecclesia is what the church is sometimes referred to. It's a, um, a, a Latin word that, that means, um, it means the gathered, the assembled. And so the author of Ecclesiastes, presumably Solomon, I think it's a good argument that it's, it's Solomon, calls himself the preacher, the assembler, uh, the, the king in Jerusalem, the son of David. And yet, uh, in his role as king, with all of the successes that Solomon had, finds himself uh, probably, most likely, writing this book later in life and having experienced the vanity or the, the emptiness, the, the, uh, the, the transient nature of life. So he says, we read with me, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. 
The grass withers and the flower falls, but God's word stands forever. Let's we pray with me. Oh Lord, we call to you as King Solomon did early in his reign, asking you for wisdom to understand this wisdom that you've given to us through King Solomon and the wisdom you gave him, but also wisdom that helps us to uh, live our lives with meaning and satisfaction, with joy, and with an understanding of something of what you do through difficulties in this life, the sorrow, the pain, the suffering that we face. These are important questions that you do give us answers to. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. About the time that I was preparing the first sermon in this series, the lead singer of the band Lincoln Park, not a band that I listen to often, I've heard a few of their songs, took his own life by hanging... Uh, actually following the lyrics of another of his, one of his songs, expressing the emptiness that he had uh, experienced in life, pain, suffering, perhaps some mental illness, depression in his own life. In one of his songs, Chester Bennington said this repeated chorus that hangs in uh, your mind long after you've heard it, I tried so hard. And got so far, but in the end, it doesn't even matter. I had to fall to lose it all, but in the end, it doesn't even matter. In other words, he tried all the things, pursued all of life's goodness, worked very hard, and found at the end, much like King Solomon, that there was emptiness and meaninglessness in his endeavors. And then, in another time, another season, He falls, loses it all, fails in various ways in his life, and his conclusion from that experience was the same as the first. Found in the end, it doesn't even matter. It led him to a place of meaninglessness, of despair, of not having purpose in life. He expresses it in a poetry, in his songs, not just this one, in other songs, that most of us grasp for the words to put into uh, into, into words what oftentimes we think. We try so hard in life. We pour into the various things that we've been called to to work. We, we live and we lose sleep trying to do all these things that we think will satisfy like Psalm 128 that we read earlier and bring all those blessings in life. And yet, we come to a place where we experience hardship and want and pain, loss, poverty even. And we say, what does all my striving actually get us? It doesn't even matter. And then it's interesting because the writer of Ecclesiastes also brings out this interesting point at the end of this chapter that we just read, he says, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. 
and you think, why pursue knowledge if it's just going to bring more pain and suffering and sorrow? But later in the book, he says something very interesting. He says, the house of sorrow is actually a place of growth. The house of pain is a place that benefits us as human beings. When we fall and when we lose it all, it's an opportunity for growth. And part of the point of the song was expressing this angst and trying so hard and finding something that matters. And I believe that in some senses, in many senses, he did find that, but still struggled, as many of us do, with highs and lows in life and still coming back to this question, does it even matter? It's a question that philosophers in the past two centuries have wrestled with perhaps more than any other question. Is there meaning in life? Nihilism has emerged as the reigning thought in philosophical circles. Nihilism, a word that now our children know it. They can tell you what it means. Quiz them later today. They'll impress you. Nihilism means nothing. It means nothing. The Latin nihil, you're familiar with it probably because sometimes we refer to creation as being ex nihilo. God created out of nothing. But if you take God out of the world around us, which philosophers and many people around us do constantly try to do to take God out of things, we can explain things all by observation and we understand more than what God could possibly understand at this point. If you take God out of everything, then what emerges is this question, is there meaning? Is there purpose to life? And these are really the only two answers out there. If there is no God, then what is the purpose in life? Is it simply to pass on to our children what we've learned and hope that they pass it on to their children? Is it all going to end at some time? Or is there a hope? Is there a hope that there's more to life than just what we can see? Just what we pass on? The definition of nihilism, as one philosopher, Alan Pratt, has said, is the notion that life has no intrinsic meaning or value. And it is, no doubt, the most commonly used and understood sense of this word today, that life has no intrinsic meaning or value. Now, nihilism plays out in a number of different contexts. Let me read a little bit more from Pratt here. He says, nihilism is the belief that all values are baseless and that nothing can be known or communicated. It's often associated with extreme pessimism and a radical skepticism that condemns existence. A true nihilist would believe in nothing, have no loyalties and no purpose other than perhaps an impulse to destroy. While few philosophers would claim to be nihilists, nihilism is most often associated with Friedrich Nietzsche, 
who argued for that its corrosive effects would eventually destroy all moral, religious, and metaphysical convictions and precipitate the greatest crisis in human history. In the 20th century, nihilistic themes have preoccupied artists, social critics, critics, and philosophers. The existentialists helped to popularize tenets of nihilism in their attempts to blunt its destructive potential. By the end of the century, the 20th century, existential despair as a response to nihilism gave way to an attitude of indifference often associated with anti-foundationalism. Now let me take that and unpack it a little bit. See, in the 19th and 20th centuries, the rise of nihilism in different circles, political, ethical, existential, gave rise to all kinds of new ideas and new freedoms. But the outworking of those philosophies, even in that short time, proved so empty that there was a response that had to come, and the response, the only reasonable response that comes out of that is either a searching, an active searching for true meaning, or a numbing of the senses, an indifference, an unwillingness to engage the true questions of life. And so the pragmatic takes over from any kind of deeper thought in many of our minds. And this happens, by the way, not just in the secular society around us, it happens in the church. And oftentimes the form that it takes in the church is an unwillingness or an unfamiliarity to, 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 the, to the word of God, the full counsel of God, as the Apostle Paul calls it, to search out the fullness of the scriptures. And our faith is based on a very narrow section of the scriptures. A very narrow section that gives us some kind of shot in the arm, some type of antidote to what's ailing us. And it leaves us vulnerable to the true crises of life, to the true difficulties of life. So you may enjoy reading the narratives of kings who conquer, of the Apostle Paul's endeavors, but you don't go to the wisdom literature and find out what it is to go into the house of mourning. You may wrestle with the goodness that you find described in the marriages of the New Testament, but you can't go back and you're unwilling to go back and wrestle through what some of the messed up marriages that you find in the life of the patriarchs and even some of the kings of Israel meant for our faith. And so when we're challenged, when you're pushed just a little bit on your faith by somebody who's researched a little bit, your faith crumbles. And there's a crisis of belief. Now, don't hear me saying you're all guilty of this and I'm not. Because I wrestle through these things as well. And you can't study the book of Ecclesiastes without experiencing some crisis of belief. And so I want to invite you into this house that is a chaotic house. Maybe a house like mirrors. We were vacationing in Palm Springs recently. And some artist built this house entirely of mirrors. Outside and inside. They weren't funny mirrors like you see at the fairs. They were just normal mirrors. But you go into this house and you say, why? What's the purpose? I don't get it. I'm uncomfortable staying here. I could never live here with all these mirrors 
around here. And it's a little bit of the experience of Ecclesiastes. It's a house of mirrors where you see one thing and you're not sure if it's a reflection of another. Where you hear one thing and you feel like it's a contradiction of another thing. And that is the type of place that you have to go into if you want to experience wisdom. And wisdom oftentimes leads to greater suffering. A greater awareness of the suffering and the pain around us. And entering into pain and suffering in other people's lives that you, frankly, feel like you would be better off just avoiding. Let them deal with their own pain. I have enough pain of my own. But I want to suggest to you that there's gain to be had from entering into this house. And there's gain to be had from entering into the pain and suffering of other people. And that this is actually a centerpiece of the call of the Christian life. It's to not only gain wisdom and knowledge by studying God's word, but that that wisdom and knowledge would equip us, equip the believer, the follower of Jesus, to follow his lead in entering into pain and suffering of other people. Ecclesiastes 1.3 poses the question of the book, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? If you're following along in the kids' outline there, that's the first entry here. What does man gain? What does man profit? The word there. It's kind of a, a marketplace term. It's, the, it's the, the profit that you experience after you've paid all of your bills. It's the leftover. What does man gain profit by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And many of us have asked this question. I see, feel like I'm just working and never getting caught up. Some of you may be saying, I don't feel like there is any profit. I just spend everything that comes in. There, in fact, many of us are probably saying, I spend more than what comes in and I find myself in debt. It's like that old song about the building of the Erie Canal. You remember that one? I can't remember all the lyrics, but what does man get after he toils all the days on another day older and deeper in debt? Oh, 16 tons. I couldn't remember how many tons. That's it. That's it. Another day older and deeper into What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And chapter 1 doesn't answer that. In fact, it presses in a little bit deeper with verse 13. Where he says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. What a dim outlook on life. We're getting down in the depths. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Solomon searched for meaning in all kinds of places. He searched for fulfillment in all kinds of places. 
mixed up my notes here. Hold on a second. We're going to look over the next few weeks at the different places that he searches for meaning and fulfillment. He searches first in the house of knowledge and wisdom. And that's where he begins, the vanity of wisdom. Many of us want to acquire knowledge. We feel like if we just could understand things around us, we would be happy. This is my prevailing temptation. Solomon says the quest for the knowledge and wisdom is a vanity. He searches, perhaps later in life, in pleasure. Not only in many wives and concubines, but also in building projects. Making a name for himself. In gardens, wine. He searches still at perhaps other times in life with power. Aligning himself with different foreign superpowers. And in other times, he searches for it in security itself. Wanting to know what's coming down the pipe. And he says, all these things have a temporary satisfaction, but they are not truly where we can find gain and profit in life. He's saying there's something more, something that is, as we've looked at in recent weeks, eternal. Unlike the vanity, which means vapor, he says there's something substantial. Eternal versus temporal of lasting value. Now he uses a few phrases here that I just want to go through to uh, help us to understand the book as a whole. These are the three main points. These are them fairly brief uh, of the sermon and you can can get them in the title there. The first one he says is there's nothing gained in life. It's an implied outworking of Verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And the implied meaning of the question is the answer, there's nothing. There's nothing gained. Enjoyment is just temporal. Satisfaction is just temporal. I said earlier that the word comes from profit, but he's looking at something greater than just what's left over in our bank account. Or what's left standing. Or even our legacy that we leave. One of my professors and teachers in writing about Ecclesiastes says it this way. Not only are we materially famished people working and thieving about. Earners and hoarders of coin and cloth. But we are likewise a soul starved people scavenging for emotional and and rational leftovers, searching for a reason, a purpose, a point to it all, attempting finally to arrive. We want our lives to count, in other words. We're not just talking about that material. In fact, Solomon is digging deep into our soul, into a soul-starved condition where we're just grasping at things that seem like they count, that they measure up. But the question is, what truly lasts? Because the implied assumption there that there's nothing gained actually implies something deeper. There's no reason to write this book if there truly is nothing gained. He's 
He's saying that there is something to be gained, but it's not what we can see and oftentimes think we want. We are called to this toil, and yet we, like the rivers and the oceans, or the oceans around us and the wind, the ocean, we're not filled up. The winds, they never quite reach a conclusion. You can't grasp onto them. There's something more. He presses this idea further that there is nothing gained in the many things that we try to find meaning, to, meaning from in life. But also he, he uses this phrase, this kind of a curious phrase. He says there's, there's nothing new. In verse 9 and verse 10. What has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. You say, well, Solomon lived in a time when there wasn't much technological advance. Everything just kept on going. They just kept using horses for transportation. And they kept... But that's not the case. Solomon's age was one of amazing scientific discovery and invention. Discovering new metals. And every time you discovered a new metal, you could discover new things that you could build with those metals. There were all kinds of developments, all kinds of amazing building projects in Solomon's time. Solomon himself built the temple in Jerusalem, an amazing structure like what had not been built before. There are always new technologies. But that's not the point that Solomon is getting at when he says there is nothing new. Like the material satisfaction, Solomon is saying there is a soul newness that is needed. And in fact, you look through the Bible and you hear the word new come up. What does does God speak of when there were new things coming up? He speaks of new covenants. That he's making with his people. He speaks of new places of life when he rescues the people out of Egypt and puts them in a new place. Speak of new life, a new self, a putting off of the old, a putting on of the new. And what Solomon is wrestling with is not a technological question. In fact, he uses a couple of examples. He uses seasons. The seasons just keep rotating. The spring comes, brings new life, but then the fall comes, and then winter, and it dies again. He uses the illustration of generations. A generation comes, and then it dies. Everybody's headed for the same place. All are food for worms, as Shakespeare said. It all seems as if there's no progress, and yet God enters in, and only through what we hear from God, he says there is something new. There is great meaning and progress into into the everyday life of people. Because when God enters into a place, it brings a newness of life. And he communicates to us that there's more to the story than what we can see. There is meaning because there is a distinction between good and evil. There's a battle constantly waging between the good and the evil. And one of the most interesting outworkings of nihilism is that it blends together good and evil. 
to the point where there's no distinction anymore. It's all just an experience in response to personal experiences. If you lived in that place, you would do that thing too. And here's where we need to press in a little bit further on that question and ask, are we just entering into that place of indifference? And this is an amazing challenge because that, that assumption, it's all just a function of our family upbringing or our cultural upbringing. You would do the same thing. It only lasts until it personally impacts you. And you can't sit in the seat of indifference when that person who had a, a, a tragic upbringing comes in and attacks somebody in your family. And you're forced to admit there is good and there is evil in this world. Now that doesn't mean that that person is the epitome of evil. It means that evil has impacted that person's life to a point. That you need to call what they've done wrong and evil. And Solomon is wrestling with this question in this book. In fact, he wrestles with this knowledge of good and evil using some of the same language that comes from Genesis and the creation. And Adam and Eve taking that fruit. And the fruit was called the knowledge of the good and evil. And Solomon's identifying in his life that there's not only evil outside of the walls of Jerusalem, but there's evil in his own life. You see, the difference between a moralistic approach to life, which so many on the outside world, outside the church, want to critique the church for, that moralistic meaning of life that, uh, that says we're good and you're not, it breaks down in the reality and the depths of the truth of Scripture and the experiences in the life of the patriarchs who weren't such good people in a lot of ways and in the lives of many people in the New Testament who are redeemed and transformed but still who are just examples that all of us are impacted by the evil that has entered into the world because Adam and Eve ate of that knowledge of good and evil fruit and evil entered into our hearts. And all of us are capable of that type of atrocity that I mentioned before when things draw near. And that answer to the question of is there meaning, is there evil, is there distinction, it only happens when that, that, those things draw near to so many of us. And so as believers, we have to be equipped. We have to know the word of God and know this wisdom so that when it happens to us, we're not rattled in our faith. But also we need to be prepared with an answer for those around us who experience evil near them and they don't know what to make of it. They want to be compassionate. There's a gut instinct to be compassionate to the person who perpetrated the evil and yet they know that there should be some type of consequence, judgment. You see, I think that that's the place of opportunity of apologetic in today's age more than any other place around us. In days past, 
people experienced a transformation, oftentimes believed in Jesus uh, in the 50s because of cultural influence. It was the thing to do. Billy Graham's crusades were huge. People went, and it was a cool thing. It was a socially acceptable thing. Well, we don't live in that time now. The LA Times a few years ago said, uh, listed out 10 things that were uncool to, in LA. And almost at the top of that list was to be Christian. And then other people, especially in the 80s and 90s, the apologetic was more along the t- when people experience crisis in their own life, then that's the time where they reach out and they need Jesus. And that was based on the assumption that they had grown up in the church and then they had left the church. And when they faced the crisis, they were reaching back to something that they knew that they had learned they experienced sometime earlier in life. But we live in an era now where most of the people who are rejecting the faith did not grow up in the church, or if they did, they have no true foundation of true belief. And so when they hit the crisis, they don't reach out to Jesus something before they reach out to their parents or to their friends or some other solution that they know in life. But the answer to life's questions are not just those practical what works things. Those are important. But the answers to the questions, the apologetic opportunity we have in this day and age is to ask that question, sometimes in the time where it's uncomfortable to even bring it up, but it's, it's oftentimes the question that people are asking in those times when evil draws near, how do we interpret it? How do we see it? How do we understand it? And it begins by understanding that we have that same propensity that same potential for evil in our hearts. And unless we are following Jesus and the God who gave us those, those commands, those, those morals, that we can enter in the same place. But also a willingness to sit down and have those long conversations. Building on the relationships that we have with people around us. Where, where does evil come from? It's a question that many people haven't even asked. They certainly don't have answers to it. But the message of the gospel says that evil came from a rebellion against God. A desire to put ourselves in the place of God. A running from God, a rejection of God, an abandonment of God. And the answer to that isn't that we turn ourselves back to God. The answer to that is first an understanding we have no ability to turn back to God. Once we run away from him, there's nothing that makes us want to go back. The answer is that God comes and pursues us. He pursued Adam and Eve in the garden. He came and found them. They were hiding. He pursued Abraham and his family many of them scoundrels, kept calling them back. He pursued a nation. He pursued a people. He keeps pursuing us. He pursued you when you didn't want God. And when you're tempted to turn away, he continues to pursue you. And he pursued you most intimately in the person of Jesus, God himself, who came and entered into the suffering so that he could rescue you back, call you back. 
Last point of this, nothing remembered. Just briefly. Solomon says, it's meaningless. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. We love to go to the zoo. See signs everywhere for people who put their name on things at the zoo. I'm so thankful that they gave their money to build things at the zoo. Solomon built amazing projects, amazing things in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas. He built a nation. He looks for satisfaction in those things that he built, and yet he looks around and he realizes these things, they're all going to come down. In fact, the temple came down, not once but twice. Jesus looked back on that temple. You remember that interaction? He said, look, his disciples all amazed at the building. They're owing and awing. Look at this temple. That's amazing. That's amazing, Jesus. Don't you see this? And Jesus said simply, the temple's coming down. That temple is coming down. What's amazing? And he said this in a very humble way, but very honest. What's amazing is that I'm here with you. And that I'm the true temple. And that the remembrance, the memorial stone, the the thing that truly is going to be remembered isn't that temple. It's what Jesus has done on our behalf. And we still live in a time and place where that is generally understood. We still date our calendar based on Jesus' coming. God himself. Still there is an acknowledgement of Christianity in our culture around that we, can, that we can reference when we're talking to others. But Jesus is saying, look, if you're looking to build your legacy based on what you're putting uh, your name on, and whether it be at the Old Globe Theater or, or downtown San Diego or at the zoo or wherever it may be, those things eventually are going to be torn down. And the thing that lasts, the thing that lasts isn't what you'd expect. It's just the little things that you do in your everyday life to be faithful in your work, to be faithful in your family, to confess your sins when you sin, to not let things build up animosity between one another, to forgive one another, to love one another. To not give up on the grand narrative of life because those, those ordinary things are what have meaning. We were just on a trip visiting a battlefield in Chickamauga near Chick- Chattanooga, Tennessee, one of the key battlefields in the fight of the, uh, um, of the Civil War. And it's, it's fascinating to go in this battlefield because there are memorials everywhere. Stones. That's where this word comes from, the, the, the memorial, the concept of a memorial, the things that matter. There are memorials everywhere. But they're, they're not like the memorials you see in so many other places. You visit France, you see a memorial of a general on a horse. Washington, D.C., you see memorials to the presidents. The memorials in the Chickamauga battlefield are very different. And by and large, the memorials to the ordinary soldiers, the divisions who fought in the place. I'm not sure what all was behind that decision, but somewhere along the line, they decided to build these Memorials just for those ordinary soldiers. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying. Also what King Solomon is saying is, I thought I was amazing as a king. I thought it was all about me. 
but it's really about the ordinary things of life. The battlefield soldiers, that's where the memorial is. And, he, and Jesus affirms this saying, what, what's his temple? It's not just him, it's, it's all who believe in him. We're, we're living stones, 1 Corinthians says. And it's very interesting, 1 Corinthians 15 uses this very language. He says, the labor that you do in the Lord is not in vain. Same language as Ecclesiastes. Vanity, it's not in vain. It's not in vain. Those are the things that are remembered where it matters, not just in earthly memorials, but in the eternal things. That's the essential message here. Nothing gained, nothing new, nothing remembered except all the things that matter. All the things that seem so difficult to do at times that you just need to hear again and again and again, this matters. Cleaning the diaper, washing the dishes, putting the work in for the sermon, processing the paperwork at work, preparing your lesson as a teacher. It may seem mundane. It may seem like Groundhog Day. Same thing over and over. But they matter. Eternally they matter. And Jesus says so very specifically. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you give us eternal eyes to see and be satisfied with the things that you've given us to do. To understand that there is purpose even in the difficulties of life and suffering, the mundane things of life. Will you keep putting off the old self in us and put on the new? Will you draw people to yourself by this message of the gospel that brings meaning into a meaningless and nihilistic world? Will you rescue people out of bondage, slavery to hopelessness that sometimes even leads to suicide? And will you help us to be agents of your peace and of your wisdom and of your knowledge? and of your love and compassion to the world around us, especially our neighbors, friends, colleagues, family. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.